Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our news editor, Paul Wallbank. Hello. Senior agencies reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hi. And our senior media reporter, Zoe Samios. Hello. Plus, coming up later, we'll be chatting to We Are Social MD, Susie Shaw, about content overload. I think it is a risk that consumers get tired of it in the same way I think they did with, with digital inventory. Pushing paid. Uh, I think brands definitely need to accept that there is a need to support content with paid. And publishers versus social agencies. Publishers are really good at understanding audiences and how to create content that people want to consume. But first, the week's topics. The penultimate radio ratings of the year are in. Ultratune selects Charlie Sheen to front its latest campaign. Oath officially launches in Australia. And the Christmas ads are in. So this week saw the release of the penultimate, a word I really struggle with, so the second last radio ratings survey of the year. Zoe, it's always hard for everyone to get their heads around everything that's happening in every city, on every station, with every program, with every piece of talent. But let's start somewhere different this time. Let's go to Brisbane. I think there seems to be something happening in the breakfast market in Brisbane. There was something that happened in the breakfast market in Brisbane. And for the record, everything is hard for me to remember as well as the whole audience. Um, so up in Brisbane, Triple M's breakfast show with Greg Marto, Martin, sorry, Marto is his nickname, Robin Bailey and Lawrence Mooney, otherwise known as Moon Man, actually took the lead in breakfast with a 12.3% share of audience. Um, that was ahead of Hit Network's Abby Coleman, Stav Davidson and Maddie Acton, who had an 11.2% share and who have actually been leading in that market for a while on and off this year, as well as Nova's Ash Bradnam, Kip Whiteman and Dave Lutterall, which had a 10.1% share. So all massive shares of audience, much bigger than you'd probably hear us talk about in Sydney and Melbourne. But for Triple M Brisbane, it was a long time coming. They brought Robin Bailey on board from 97.3 FM, I think almost two years ago now, and they've been gaining momentum for some time. So it was a massive achievement for them, and it actually helped Triple M Brisbane win the radio rating survey, the the penultimate, as you said, with an 11.6% share of total people, and that was just ahead of Nova's 11.5, which is quite unusual in that market given Nova is a heritage brand, and particularly in Drive with uh, Kate uh, Richie, Tim Blackwell, Marty Sheargold, that's an incredibly popular show. So to see Nova, and it's only 0.1 difference, so it probably will recover, but to see them come off and see Triple M win was a surprise. Look, we will come back to the dynamics of the drive market shortly, but sticking with Triple M for now, the grill team, Maddie Johns is leaving. Talk me through why that's significant as someone who is not a Maddie Johns fan, not really a Triple M fan, <laughs> not even really a fan of, you know, that show in general. So so why does it, why is it significant? I think when any show changes and we've seen it a lot with Today FM in Sydney as well, when you lose a major star in a breakfast slot, that can have a huge impact on the audience be it cumulative audience or the audience share. So Maddie Johns for those of you that aren't based in Sydney is you call him something like the anchor of that show. He does a show with uh, Emma Friedman, Chris Page and Gus Warland. 
And he's been doing the show, I think he's been around for seven years, if I, my memory serves me correctly. So when you've got someone that's been embedded in a show for that long and then all of a sudden they're going to go, that can really, depending on who they put in, it can really, really change things for better or, or for worse. And we've seen some bad choices or selections over the years with Today FM we've talked a lot about where putting in someone when a major person goes has been detrimental to the show. Now, when I spoke to Triple M's head of content, Mike Fitzpatrick, this week, he actually said to me something which I probably hadn't thought it, it, it made sense, but he just said everything's up for negotiation. Everyone on that show is up for negotiation. The name, the grill team is up for negotiation. For all I know, that whole show could be wiped now. He's really looking to reinvent it and he doesn't want to focus on rugby league. For those of you who don't know Matty Johns, he's a huge rugby league star or former star. But had Fitzy and in this case, Fitzy being Mike Fitzpatrick from Triple M, not Fitzy the talent from the Nova Network, had he or someone else not said to you that it would be a disaster should Maddie Johns depart? Yeah, it was an interesting conversation we had earlier this year or might have been even late last year. Uh, Fitzy and I were talking about uh, Mark Geyer who was also on that show, MG, as he was called in his departure and I said, you know, do you think MG leaving will, will impact on your audience? And he goes, oh, look, it might but probably not because he wasn't so big and, and as prominent in the show. The show would be really effective if someone say like Matty Johns had exited, which he probably ate his own words a year on. But um, you, he said to me, he, I don't think he said the words worried. He said that Matty Johns was a big talent and it would be really hard to replace him. But he's thinking of it as an opportunity to actually change what that station in Sydney is about, to move away from the sports focus and more into comedy. He doesn't believe that there's enough comedy in the breakfast slot and he wants to really push into that space. So you could see it as a complete worry for that network and he could see it that way, but he's seeing it as a way to change things up a little bit, which I think is good. And just finally as well, the Hit Network, which is part of Southern Cross Oz Stereo, they were some time back staring down the barrel of Hamish and Andy leaving their drive time slot after they a were. decade. And there was so much speculation about when, if ever, they would recover. And they took quite a different approach in having Carrie Bickmore and Tommy Little from 3pm until 430 and then Kate Langbrook and Dave Husey-Hughes, who were former ARN talent, come across to do the later time slot and split that drive. They're now leading in Melbourne with 11%, and that's leading, for those of you who like to play this game, across AM and FM. They are beating 3AW. They're struggling a bit in Sydney with only 6%, which is well behind Nova 96.9's Kate, Tim and Marty's 11.8%, but they are making headway and they are ahead of SCA stablemate Triple M's 5.7% in drive in Sydney. Interestingly, they've also won in Brisbane with a 14.2% audience share and that was a market that Kate, Tim and Marty had really dominated with some of the biggest audience shares in the country. Mm. Zoe, I know you spoke to Gemma Fordham about this change in approach uh, from Southern Cross Stereo. So what did she have to say? Well, it's a good chance to talk about it because I don't think it made it into that extensive piece that I write every survey. What Gemma said to me and, and I said, look, you know, it's been a year since you announced all these changes. What was the thinking behind it taught me through it? And she just said, look, it's not rocket science. It's pretty straightforward. You know, think about when a mum might be in a car picking up her kids from school or, or think about if you leave the office at six, you're probably still in tra traffic at 6.30 or from six until 6.30. So it was about 
you know, giving an opportunity for audiences that might have not been listening previously to actually listen to the station and have have a go. She said that obviously she had this really nice anecdote about um, Carrie Bickmore and her sitting in LA on the floor and her begging um, Carrie at the, mo- at the time going, please, please, can we do this? This is why we need to do this. And she was really worried about her project duties because Carrie's a, um, a host on, on the project on Channel 10 as well. But she said every single person that she spoke to could see the necessity in extending the drive time beyond the traditional 4 to 6 p.m. slot. There are people in the car at 3 p.m. There are people in the car from 6 p.m. It was about expanding that. And if we talk about where you're consuming radio, no, we can't prove where everyone listens, but I think it's safe to say that most people are listening in their car on the way to or from work or from school. Well, Carrie Bickmore is about to go on maternity leave, so it feels a bit like fortunate, unfortunate timing for that strategy paying off, but it seems good that they spent the time investing in it anyway. Up next, Ultratune appoints Charlie Sheen. So Ultratune, which for those of you who don't know, is a sort of franchised mechanic retailer where you can take your car to get serviced, have for quite some time now been let's say, steering clear of traditional advertising in that sector. They first brought in the what became known as Rubber Girls, uh, which I can't even think of the correct language to use here, uh, but they were definitely targeting a certain male demographic with these women. These women then found themselves in various problematic situations uh, where they were almost run over by a train, they had various problems and as much as the brand itself denied it, it was all about these bimbo women needing help from the lovely men at Ultratune. With unexpected situations. Car trouble? Get your car serviced at Ultratune. That then evolved into having very well-known men come into the campaign. So we had Jean-Claude Van Damme star in one. Now that campaign uh, was complained about to the Ad Standards Board for various depictions of violence and helpless women. And then the next one that came along was Mike Tyson, which again attracted attention because he is a convicted rapist and obviously has quite a checkered history with women and with violence and with the law. Now, Ultratune argued to me on many, many occasions that, you know, he's done his time, he, he did the crime, he's done his time, you've got to forgive people and move on at some point. They've now got the next iteration of the campaign coming up uh, and that is going to be fronted by Charlie Sheen, who one could also say has a checkered history with women, drugs, violence and the law. So, Paul... I don't know if you're part of Ultratune's um, target demographic. I know that when I interviewed them on stage at one of Mumbrella's automotive marketing summits, I was sort of told, don't worry about it, you are not our target demographic and it's working for those that we are targeting. And, you know, for hashtag feminists like yourself, Vivian, who get upset about these things, we don't care because we don't want your business anyway. So what do you think about about this strategy? Does it work? 
I knew you were going to throw to me on this because, uh, yeah, I'm probably am close to that demographic, but I'm not convinced. And um, maybe Mike Tyson, yeah, maybe. But uh, Charlie Sheen, Two and a Half Men, is that really that demographic anyway? Uh, he's probably not that well known, but I think it's the outrage machine that really works for them here. Is that uh, getting the articles in Umbrella, in Fairfax, on the ABC, and so on? Uh, getting that message out way beyond what uh, their traditional advertising budgets would ever be able to afford. I would question you there that he's not that well known. I mean, he's almost, even if nobody watched Two and a Half Men, which by some surprise they actually did, but even even if nobody did, he's become his own sort of outrage machine and even him coming to Australia for a speaking tour that generated outrage. People tried to get his visa cancelled because of his domestic violence history. Even the husband, uh, the widowed husband of Jill Ma, who was murdered in Melbourne, got involved and tried to say he shouldn't come here because it's projecting that if you're rich enough and powerful enough, it's okay to abuse women and it's feeding into that really problematic culture. So he, he's a he's a headline generator. But it, it's more about whether, whether the headlines are are even worth it. Like, you're right, he, yeah. he, they take up my column inches, which I resent. They take up airtime, which I resent. But is it going to make anyone go, yeah, Charlie Sheen, yes, I'm going to go and get my pink slip from Ultratune? I, I agree with you. I really see how this um, – on top of that, the the outrage machine steering gearing up into action um, – it's gearing up on sites like ours and in the ABC and Fairfax where I'd, I'd argue you've not really got the audience, that ultra-tuned core audience, uh, probably the people tuning into, and I'm probably stereotyping here too, uh, the V8 supercars and that, which they're probably not paying attention to that outrage as much either. Abby, you write about all sorts of campaigns, the good, the bad, the badly good. What do you think of this one? I think sort of to Paul's point there about a strategy of being controversial, it is a strategy that a lot of advertisers do take, but it is interesting from if I think about how we write about it, we write a story about who's going to star in the ad before the ad has actually even come out. So there's two stories already when, you know, normally it's sort of here's the campaign and X is a strategy, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas for for Ultratune, it's here's the person starring in it, then another story, here's the campaign, then another story, here's the ad standards ruling, then another story, you know, following on from that. So I do think it's definitely a strategy and a tactic, um, as we've just spoken about, to take up column inches. They have previously denied to me that they make the ads to get banned. Uh, they have said very publicly on the record that they don't that they work very closely with legal advisors to make sure that the ads are fit for broadcast. But prediction, do you think this one, I mean, we, we know nothing about it at the moment other than it's got Charlie Sheen in it, but shot in the dark, Abby, do you think it's going to generate complaints to the Ad Standards Board? If a McDonald's ad about summer generates complaints, then absolutely 150%, I would almost bet my life on it that there will be complaints about this. Abby, you might know more about this than me, but I'm asking myself, why Charlie Sheen? So tell me, why Charlie Sheen? Interesting you ask. Um, there was a, an opinion piece in the Daily Telegraph titled Ultratune Doesn't Deserve Women's Business. And uh, in response to that, uh, Ultratune's national marketing manager responded and actually came out and <laughs> had a bit of an uh, 
attack at the journalist, but also explained why they had chosen Charlie. And I quote this, he said, since being diagnosed HIV positive, the Charlie Sheen effect has shone the light on HIV like never before. Following his HIV disclosure, this corresponded with one of the largest ever spikes in Google searches ever recorded in the US on his insidious disease, raising public awareness considerably. So I think they're playing the this is a good card. We're helping people living with HIV by showing Charlie Sheen, but not talking about HIV. Well, I guess that point will stand if the ad becomes an advocacy avenue for HIV. My bet is it's not going to, but I'm willing to stand corrected. So we'll wait and see. So Oath has officially launched in Australia after a turbulent time for the company. So Zoe, this comes off the back of the Yahoo 7 joint venture Mm. unravelling, 7 taking its digital properties back. But I'm sure there are some people out there who know Oath as a huge international giant but don't really understand what it means for that company to actually launch here when it already had a presence here via Yahoo 7. So what's it actually going to look like? A lot of LinkedIn changes. I'm joking, but one of our commenters <laughs> actually wrote that saying a lot of people who worked at Yahoo 7 all of a sudden changed their names to Oath. So there's obviously a lot of people who have been working this market behind the scenes to have this official launch come out this week. Basically, what Oath? there's two parts of Oath that we have to look at. So there's the Oath that people would know that's involved in advertising as a corporate brand and the Oath that owns a lot of consumer-facing brands. Think HuffPost, TechCrunch and Yahoo take out the seven, just Yahoo, so Yahoo Finance and all of that. What Oath's done in officially launching into this market is a couple of things. So Paul Sigaloff is now the managing director of Oath Australia. He was previously at Yahoo 7, but in a commercial role, I think he was head of sales or head of commercial, something like that was his official title. So what he's done is he's basically, and it's very lengthy, so I'll spare you all the details of his job for the last well, since March, however many months, that's nine months, I think. He's been working in the back end to basically bring this proposition to market for everyone from an advertiser to a consumer. So what he's planning on doing is investing in more local content. So reinvigorating brands like HuffPost, which last year we got completely scaled back in the local market and and we thought it was effectively dead in this market. So he's claiming that that's going to come back. More people on the ground for TechCrunch, Yahoo Finance and all of that. At the same time, they've launched this thing called both ad platforms. So if you are familiar with things like One by AOL or Gemini, these are all advertising technologies. They've put them all under one banner uh, to basically offer new opportunities for brands to integrate into the, the consumer-facing platforms with Oath. Basically, it's nothing sim- It's quite similar to what they've been doing already, but it's a much bigger push. They're saying that they've come alive. They're going to bring a lot more investment down under. That was the sort of connotations I got from this week. And Paul, I know that you were heavily involved in the tech scene some time ago. I don't know much about this space, but even to me, Yahoo feels like a legacy brand facing a lot of branding problems. I severely judge anyone who has a Yahoo email address. Whoa. And this, this that's is very ageist. That's of me. You. I this have is, one. Well, then I judge you. But I mean, this is, this is coming from somebody with a Hotmail address. So you know, like I'm not I'm not exactly commanding from on high. But do, do you agree? Is is Yahoo sort of one of the 
old tech boom companies that was reigning supreme and, and can it work in 2018? That is a really good question, Viv, and you've got to say probably not. I mean, there's all these wonderful brands from the early 2000s that uh, got pulled into the Yahoo umbrella, whether it was, uh, say, Tumblr or whether it was uh, Flickr. All of these were really good brands in the day, and Yahoo took them on and uh, pretty well killed them, uh, let them die of neglect. So these it's hard to see how they're going to do it. They definitely were recruiting for a while. Uh, they they had recruiters out there uh, pitching journos for jobs. So they are looking for uh, uh, more original content. But I think the problem for them here, as Zoe's uh, been describing, is that unwinding the Yahoo 7 agreements where basically they were getting all their content from seven and we go back to that era of the early 2000s where nine and seven and pack mags and so on didn't have the felt they didn't have the digital smarts so had to bring one of these technology platforms on board it does feel like they've unwound this quite late you know nine msn was a huge player back in the day and everyone would log out of their hotmail email accounts as was the trend and you would be redirected to 9MSN. And so by default, that's sort of where you'd get your headlines and get your news and you almost got trapped in that ecosystem. That all does feel quite feel quite old. So I'm, I'll be intrigued to see how it works. But Zoe, the other thing I'm intrigued by is the return of HuffPost. Um, is that going to be another women's content platform? Who, who are they going to be targeting with that product? Paul Sigaloff hasn't really gone into that yet. Um, and I, that's something that I'll be really interested to see. As far as I was concerned, you know, Oath was not really interested at all at having HuffPost in this market. We saw the collapse of that joint venture between Fairfax uh, and, and the people at HuffPost late last year. If they do target women, I think, look, I'm, I'm fairly cynical and I'm fairly cynical of any international brand that's trying to establish itself in this market anymore. I find, think it's incredibly tough. I think we have enough digital publishers here with all with different points of difference. One of the main criticisms that I had personally from HuffPost was that it didn't differentiate aid itself enough from everything else in market at the time. A lot of the team from HuffPost now work at 10 Daily and so any remnants of what the character that was HuffPost here has sort of switched across to 10 Daily and that's working for them because it's fun it's bubbly and that's all a kind of 10 thing i'll be really curious to see what exactly they bring here and how much local content it will actually be so next christmas is coming and even though it's the middle of november it's probably no surprise that we're starting to face a deluge of holiday campaigns festive campaigns christmas campaigns from aldi maya woolies bonds and basically everyone abby you've been covering a lot of these ads what's maya done and and what's what's different about it I think the Maya ad is one that I've been really interested in because Christmas ads can get quite repetitive um, and a lot of brands sort of take similar approaches. But I think Maya is really interesting because of the strategy that it's used. So basically what they've done is they've created a bauble that you can hang on your Christmas tree, your Christmas decoration that turns green for nice or red for naughty and, and parents can control it with an app on their phone. And they've then turned that into sort of an integrated campaign with the TV element as well, which shows kids doing household chores to get the bauble to turn green. Have you been good this Christmas? 
is naughty or nice, Bobble? We'll let you know. But I think it's really interesting uh, from a strategy perspective because it's quite smart to get people actually into Maya at Christmas time to purchase a product. But then once you're in Maya, you're sort of a bit consumed in um, <laughs> the shopping center that is Maya. You can- yeah, you're trapped. You live there. <laughs> exactly. So I think it's a really smart strategy in terms of actually uh, the ROI from a sales perspective in terms of actually getting people in the store to then think, well, I'm here now. I've bought my bauble. What else do I need to get? Um, And that was something that really interested me. And I also think that while the TV ad isn't amazingly different, I think it works and I think it it sells the products and it would get people to Maya thinking this is kind of a smart idea. And look, that's an interesting point that you make that once people are in the store, Maya's almost overcome more than half of its challenge because what Maya is struggling with at the moment is getting people to come to their store, which is seen as hectic, too confusing, too busy, too messy when people could just go online for those sorts of goods. So if Maya can get people in the store, they might overcome some of their challenges. Now, another brand that certainly doesn't seem to have trouble getting people to come to their store uh, is Aldi and they've also released a Christmas campaign. So talk us through that one. I really love this campaign. I think this one's my favourite Australian Christmas campaign so far and basically it's it it's works around Santa being lost in the Australian outback. So he crashes his sleigh and it's broken and he's then forced to shear sheep and uh, go to the toilet in a drop dunny and bath outside and, you know, do all these sort of stereotypical Aussie things. And it's interesting because the ad doesn't actually use um, any if very, very little words and it's it's music and it's Santa and it's shot really, really well. And I think, you know, as some of our commenters have pointed out, it also pays homage to traditional Australian land, which I think is really important and I think has resonated really well. But the strategy behind it around the idea of having an unexpected guest at Christmas time. How many times have you sat at your Christmas table and thought, who the hell is that relative over there that I've never met before? And I think it's really interesting to also sort of have that human insight that people can really tap into and relate to. And I think that was a really good way of leveraging that. Well, my podcast aim for the year has just been achieved in watching Abby say drop Dunny on <laughs> on the podcast. So now we can all go home. But up next, Abby, along with our deputy editor, Josie Tuddy, will be joined by We Are Social MD, Susie Shaw. And joining us now on the Mumbrella cast is Susie Shaw, Managing Director at We Are Social Australia. And also in the studio with me is Abigail Dawson, Mumbrella's Senior Agencies Reporter. Welcome, Susie. Thank you. Um, So around this time last year, you appointed your very first editorial director. It's a year on. Um, Why do you think it's so important for social agencies to think like publishers? It's a good question. Um, We did appoint Suze Tucker, who's been with us for a year and um, has proved an incredibly valuable asset to the business. What she's brought to us is a mix of experience that you wouldn't normally find in a traditional agency person. So Suze had worked uh, publisher side, uh, pedestrian and various other publishers, and she'd also worked brand side. So at ASOS, among other brands, looking after their branded editorial. So what she tends to have and has instilled in her team, so a team of six now, is probably a bit more of an audience 
first focus on creating brand rather than starting with the brand and what does the brand want to communicate they really think about the audience and what is the brand, what is that audience want to engage in they'll look at everything from the themes of the content that they're engaging in right through to the formats and what channels they're on and all of that thinking is then baked into the content we're creating on behalf of brands with the idea that if we get that right get that mix right of audience and brand focus it will be more engaging and more effective for the brands that we're working for. Um, So it's actually quite interesting. It's something that we were speaking to Tim Duggan from Junkie Media about on the podcast quite recently. Um, And he, he was of the opinion that publishers are almost taking the place of social agencies these days um they're working a lot with brands through their branded content arms and they're almost replacing the social agency in a way do you agree with that i'm going to guess probably not i think they certainly do have a role to play and in many ways they're probably more effective than some other agencies are at helping brands engage an audience because they really will understand their audience strongly But I think they're probably not better than agencies at understanding brand communication. And so that's where I think we hit the sweet spot is is understanding both sides of those things. And we've really invested heavily in our editorial team in order that we do build up our skill at understanding audience and creating content that's audience first. But, you know, they've got a lot to add. And I think that traditional agencies need to think about what you know, what they're bringing to the table because I think publishers are really good at understanding audiences and how to create content that people want to consume. And in a world where, you know, we're no longer operating in an interruption um, environment where you can just interrupt people with paid messages because often they're consuming entertainment-led content where there isn't spots that you can buy, you do need to find ways of engaging audiences with branded messages. You spoke a lot there, you know, about agency models and sort of we are social traditionally was quite a, was a social agency, but now, you know, you've moved a lot into influencer, uh, influencer marketing and, you know, as we've just spoken about also having sort of journalism and, and publishing in there. Why and, and when sort of did We Are Social decide that they needed to, to pivot, to, to change from sort of being solely social focused? Yeah. Look, it's been an organic process and I think it wasn't a conscious decision. It's more of one we're evolving to meet the needs of our clients. So what's changed is the scope of what is social. And I think, you know, all successful media brands now are social to an extent you know they've they encourage um, the audience to participate they drive conversation they encourage sharing and so on and so I don't think we're seeing ourselves as being defined as anything other than a where we we talk about ourselves as a socially led creative agency but it's just the scope of what that is it's just getting broader and broader all the time and we are trying to evolve our capability in order to best serve our clients because they don't want more and more agencies they want the agencies they've got to do the best possible job of filling the needs that they have and that is about engaging audiences with branded messages so does that mean social agencies and agencies like yourself are a bit of a threat to to traditional ad agencies would you say I, i think we certainly compete with them um and you know we all do different things but we also collaborate with them you know there's not a single client that we have where we're not working collaboratively with another agency partner. It might only be a media partner rather than another creative agency, but most often we're part of a lineup and we try, we really try to collaborate and bring something to the table that's complementary to what's already there. And what we hope that will be is expert um, knowledge and understanding of how audiences behave um, around social channels. But it doesn't mean that what we do is exclusively 
attached to social channels is about, you know, creating content essentially that will fly on social social channels and really get people talking, drive conversation. And you sort of spoke there, you know, a lot about creative agencies and then sort of the social aspect of it as well. I mean, I guess the missing arm to that's almost media. So, you know, media buying and planning, is that something that you think we'll start to see uh, coming through in more social agencies or in We Are Social? It's certainly part of what we do. Um, it's not a huge part of what we do because the bulk of it still sits with large media agencies but it is important because we've got to a place where it's no longer good enough to think about the content you've got to think about distribution as well because without the right distribution plan and support you're unlikely to find an audience it's just not the case anymore that if you create great content content the audience will come you've got to know how you're going to distribute it and also understanding how you're going to distribute it will often inform the format or the placement. And so there's, you can't really wait until you've created the content to figure that bit out. So it's an important part of what we do already. Um, either we do media planning and buying ourselves on behalf of some of our clients, or as I said earlier, we collaborate really closely with other um, agencies. Does this mean the days of organic social media posts are over? I'm afraid to say they pretty much are. I mean, <laughs> it's it's probably under 1% now. Um, and it obviously depends on lots of things, including the size of your audience. If you've got a small audience, you might achieve better organic reach. But if you've got a large audience, it's very low and ever diminishing. And uh, I think brands definitely need to accept that there is a need to support content with paid. And I think because of that, what we're seeing is a really positive shift to brands doing fewer, bigger, better things rather than just um, it being a volume game. They're, they're, creating value um, and doing st – there's still a role for it because you are engaging audiences and also there are exceptions. You know, there are certain brands who are have got more engaged audiences and that doesn't help their organic reach and also influencers have far higher level of organic reach than brands do and that's one of the many reasons that brands are employing influencers to help them spread their message. So do you think it's the case that it's almost a brand – would be better placed off going to an influencer or a social agency rather than just trying to post a lot on their own pages is is posting on their own pages even really helpful these days or is it actually more useful to go to pages who have more engagement like influencers i think both have a role like for for brands who do have uh, an engaged audience having a regular dialogue with them is valuable and it is important, particularly if you are getting any level of earned reach. But mo any brand we work with is boosting their posts as well to ensure that they're reaching a solid audience that makes the value of the content worthwhile and also they're reaching the right audience. And that's the beauty of paid is you can help point the content at the most relevant audience. Um, but it, it is absolutely a benefit of working with both um, influencers and publishers. You know, that's where publishers can do a really great job of helping to distribute content. And that's why we don't see ourselves as working in opposition with them. They're absolutely um, an important distribution um, channel for the content we create. And uh, brands are quite interesting. I know we've we've spoken to people. Uh, we spoke to Vamp on our podcast um, a while back, and they, you know, we sort of discussed an influencer campaign that didn't go too well. And you know, their sort of message was that you you can't really ever let a brand lead an influencer campaign. But I also feel like there has been a bit of murkiness and cloudiness around influencer marketing. Is that clearing up? Are brands starting to now understand actually the value of it and and how to do it properly? I think. 
Some are. We do a lot of work in this space and it's growing and I think there's still a lot of headroom in it. I think there's a lot of detractors pulling against uh, influencers and I think many of those have a vested interest in that they might be threatened by influencers. But from our perspective, influencers are the new media owners. You know, they're creating great content. They've found audiences for that great content and they're highly engaging um, their audiences. And I think for that reason, you know, it's always been the case that wherever there are eyeballs, there's a media dollar to be made and it's essentially what's going on with influencers. I see them very, very much like publishers. And I think if you work, if you choose the right publisher or influencer and you work with them in the right way to help them understand your brand message, they can create some amazing content because many of them are such talented creators. Um, They're creative, they're technically talented and I think where brands build up genuine relationships, and it doesn't always have to be a long-term relationship, they can work tactically really well as well. But when they do get a proper understanding of what the brand's trying to communicate, they're really effective at, at landing that communication. And again, not only do they have really strong organic reach, the level of engagement is on average, I think, five times higher than a branded page. So mm-hmm. their audience are really leaning into what they're communicating and often we'll, what we will see in terms of the comprehension and the outtake of a message from an influencer, a piece of content is far higher than what the brand could achieve putting it out on their brand channels. Now, while influencers are undeniably more successful than brand pages, there has been a lot of outcry from influencers, especially on Instagram recently, uh, sort of in the last few months um, around the algorithm changes that have been occurring. And even the really successful influencers who have millions and millions of followers are actually struggling a lot more than they were previously to, to get that engagement and that reach. Do you see that as an issue and and how do you sort of navigate around the constant changes that seem to be happening on Instagram and Facebook? Yeah, I think it's a challenge that almost no one can overcome because it's literally about running out of airtime. You know, there's as more as we sort of fill up our feeds with more and more people that we're following on any given day, the algorithm has to prioritize which content they're going to serve to the audience. And if the audience is consuming three minutes of a feed a day, there's only three minutes worth of content that's going to fit in there and the algorithm is helping to prioritise that. And I think in general the al- we can all argue about whether we're having friends that we'd like to see more of being sort of screened out of our feeds but generally the algorithm does do a pretty good job and what we're seeing with the the drop in organic reach is, is a bit of a blow to brands that are needing to pay but it is certainly attempting to retain the integrity of their product, which is the feed and making sure that people keep coming back because they're seeing the sort of content that they do want to consume. Do you think it's sustainable with so many brands getting on board with social media? There's so much content out there. There's just so much stuff being created. Do you think the consumer is getting tired of it all? Or do you think brands are just going to need to get smarter at the way that they do it? I think it is a risk that consumers get tired of it in the same way I think they did with with digital inventory that it became like wallpaper and I think digital um, media owners just created more and more and more inventory and we saw diminishing returns in terms of how much people were consuming it and how valuable that inventory was and I think that is a risk that we all need to be cognizant of. But as is ever the case, if brands do a good job of creating content that is of value to the audience and being respectful of the audience and their time, they can be effective. Create content people want to see. 
you recently appointed Pete Gums as your crea- creative director. What does the role of a creative director do at We Are Social and how does that differ from a traditional ad agency? Yeah, so Pete works in our creative team that's headed up by an ECD, which is Phil Shearer. Um, what the creative function sort of divides into three, I guess, parts. One is the editorial team, which we've spoken about, and they tend to focus a bit more on, on I guess, the always-on content and that audience first piece. Then there's the creative uh, department who are a bit more like traditional creatives in that they work in teams, art director, copywriter, and they're generally coming up with campaigns. So a, a client like Netflix might say, well, right, we want to launch this new show, come up with a campaign to help us do that, and that's what Pete and his team will do. And then uh, between them is is a production team of designers and video videographers and video editors and so on who are helping that team produce and, and producers who are helping that team produce all the content. So um, they're doing much like what creatives in any agency would do. It's just the type of content is a probably a bit more socially oriented. Um, but saying that, you know, we're doing big activations. Pete's been involved in shooting some amazing content for um, Netflix. You know, he, he's been involved in directing that content as well. So that's one thing that's been really nice for the team is they're probably a bit more versatile in their craft that they're able to sort of have a, a get involved in, in hmm. a level of execution that they might not elsewhere. I'm going to ask you this question mainly because I want to put a clip of Queer Eye into this podcast. <laughs> I love Queer Eye. <laughs> but tell me about... The Yas episode. Yeah, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Yes, but it, it was is, amazing. Yes. <laughs> it was amazing. And apparently it was on Gogglebox last night. So uh, oh. the whole episode. So um, Netflix have such a fabulous property in Queer Eye and um, they're generally always looking for ways to um, promote relevance in Australia and, and demonstrate that they're here and they care about the Australian market. Just as Netflix found Gay Georgia on the map, leave it up to them to find Yas Australia. Hey, Tan. Yeah. Tan, yeah. Oh, Could you do your Australian exit for us, yeah? Leave me alone. Rack off, just leave me alone. Can we get the dossier, please? So we've got our work cut out for us in Yas, Australia. We have not one makeover, a bit two. So we're helping a gentleman by the name of George, as well as a bistro. And Here's so- the thing. I think because Australia just legalized their same-sex yes. marriage moment, it's only fitting that we would sweep into a gorgeous little town and create a gorgeous community moment. Because, honey... Is this Rolling Hill moment everything? Yes. yes. Do they need a more pull-together bistro? Probably. Yes. We, th- we thought yes was a fun play mm. on, you know, the famous <laughs> Jonathan um, phrase of yes, queen. Um, and so we brought them down and um, it was a challenging production because we had to identify the right talent and something that would be visually interesting to watch the um, transformation. So we also did the bistro down there. So, yeah, Pete and the m- much broader team at um, We Are Social um, – handle that production it was incredibly successful that piece of content um which it lives in it was a 20 minute app that um sits on youtube which i think might be their most um piece of youtube watched piece of youtube content in australia um and then we promoted a short um app of that on on the social channels you've obviously mentioned sort of uh, quite a big shift from you know where we are social started to the content that it's producing now what other shifts do, do you see changing and what do you expect to be doing you know 10 years down the track big question well, and a hard one to answer I know. And, and I know it's a cliche when people say this but 10 years in social is like a hundred I think I've certainly learned more in the last three than I had in my entire career um, in terms of technical knowledge I think um, it's the platforms as a market is maturing. So I don't think we're going to see 
the entrance of as many new players into the platform space as we have seen in the last 10 years. I think that those, they will, we might see the diminishment of some, but I think we'll see the consolidation of others and that continued acquisition of platforms by Facebook. Um, I think we'll see a big increase in um, commercial, uh, social commerce, so mm-hmm. being able to buy things directly through the platforms, which again will mean that I think brands invest more and more heavily in that space in terms of product marketing. I think influencers will continue to grow and start to compete quite heavily with media brands. Um, and I think we're at a stage now where that organic reach is so low, paid media is so important. I think paid is going to become more important line of investment for brands in reaching their audiences. One thing I think we might see grow more is um, kind of a return to community building. So I think brands originally built communities, then it became a bit more like broadcast. And I think we're going to see a bit of a return to brands seeing the benefit of building a community either around their brand or or a topic, you know, so um, specialist areas, because there is a great opportunity for a brand. The, the analogy I sometimes use is becoming the campfire around which people gather to talk about whatever their interest area is. And if you can, as a brand, can be relevant to that topic that people want to discuss, there's some amazing um, functionality within social platforms to drive genuine community and conversation that that your brand can benefit from. And is it a, I suppose, risk or concern with tech platforms and even social platforms that all of the content that you're, that you're creating essentially sits there? So if something was to sort of go wrong with that, which is totally out of your hands, you know, you're left with a bit of a problem and and no content. Is that ever an issue? Well, if something goes wrong, you can pull the content down. But I think that is a challenge that that I think things move very – the life cycle of content – the good thing is the life cycle of content in social is short and the bad thing is that it's short. You know, <laughs> it means that you've got to create it faster and more efficiently because the relevance of it is probably going to be hours, days. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's no longer the case that you can create a piece of copy and that's going to be relevant for six or 12 months. It's just not how consumers think anymore. Um And it is a very responsive medium and I think brands often don't know how an audience is going to respond and sometimes the first response from an audience will determine how everyone else responds. You know, you you could often track, I've never scientifically looked at it, but you could probably track what sentiment is going to come from the first comment um, because that's what will often inform the way people think. And I've seen many brands with the best intentions do things that, then prompt a negative response and I feel sorry for them because um, that's the risk, some of the risks when the audience can talk back. But, you know, that's the world we live in and brands mm. need to ad- adapt. I think that's probably all we've got time for, sadly. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us, Susie. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for supporting the Mumbrella cast. If you haven't had a chance yet, we'd love it if you could rate it or even write a review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, a reminder that we have released the shortlist for the Mumbrella Next Awards, which will recognise and celebrate those who have joined the media marketing and advertising industry within the last 10 years. The awards, along with Mumbrella's 10th birthday celebrations, will be held in Sydney on the 6th of December, and will also be attended by the 100-strong jury of CMOs, CEOs, agency bigwigs and industry game changers. So if you're a finalist, a friend of a finalist, 
want to wish us a happy 10th birthday or you just want to come along and network and celebrate with the best of the best, then head to mumbrella.com.au slash next awards to secure your ticket. That's all for now. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks, Viv. Thanks, Viv.